I was getting ready to come up, I looked down, I saw my robe is falling apart, so I need some help. If you're a seamstress, please speak to me after church, because I'm going to be a mess up here. Look at this, it's ridiculous. I, you won't even, I'm, I look hor- horrible. You won't even be able to watch me up here today. <laughs> We're continuing in our journey through the story, which is an abridged version of the Bible. I want to see how we did on getting back in the saddle again this week. How many of you read uh, chapter 22 this last week? All right, not bad, but I know there are a few of you forgot. Yeah, you've got to get back into it again. So I hope that you will, because this week, as I'm going to share later on, has been really stimulating for me. Just a reminder, we have been watching from the earliest moments of creation how, how the Lord has woven a scarlet thread through his story. That scarlet thread, of course, is the promise that one day he was going to send a Savior, a Messiah, an anointed one who's going to restore the broken relationship between God and and his beloved people. And so we've been watching and waiting, you know, hundreds and even thousands of years the people waited for this, this promised Messiah to come along. But we reach the end of the Old Testament and we realize he still hasn't come. I mean, it's, it's been a long time that this promise has been hanging out there, and he still hasn't come. And, and by the time that we start the New Testament, uh, now the Romans have invaded. The people are living under, under terrible oppression, and all but the most faithful must have reached a point where they thought, has God forgotten his people? Has God forgotten his promise to us? And then last week we read, well, no, the Lord hadn't forgotten at all. Because last week we saw the the announcement, the at-last announcement that the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, had finally come. But I think we'd all admit that it was not the grand entrance that we expected, was it? We we discover an out-of-wedlock young woman giving birth to a child in a barn. And, those, and the only people that greet them, that welcome them that night are a, a group of shepherds who were considered in Jewish society to be vermin. And then uh, they, they run away from a murderous king who would kill the child, make their way to Egypt. They reside there for a while until they think they're safe to return. They come back and, and they have to run from another murderous king, his murderous son. And, and so they end up making their way north into po, a podunk town in Galilee. Galilee was the, the Hicksville of, of Palestine. You need to understand that. And Nazareth was the armpit of Hicksville. Uh, it, it was not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It was so insignificant. And it was there that the Holy Family went and that the Messiah resided. And we think, well, at least he's finally here, you know. And then suddenly we're into 30 more years of silence. So after thousands of years uh, of the Old Testament, after 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament, now the the Messiah comes and now it's silent again. Why 30 years of silence? Well, I was going to use her to tell the story, but I won't. The answer is a baby. God, when, when John wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What he meant was the word became a baby. Think of the condescension of God. That he was willing not only to become one of his own creations in order to save us, that he becomes baby flesh, a little one. Why the 30 years then? The Messiah had to grow up. 
We don't even think of it that way. But the Messiah had to grow up. He had to cry. He had to be restless in synagogue. He had to be carried out of synagogue. He had to... We know only one story about him as a 12-year-old. And after that, nothing. He had to be loved and nurtured by his father who taught him the family business. He had to mourn his father's death. By the time that this 30 years has elapsed, they lapsed. Not only has, has Herod died, and, and probably some of the older shepherds had died, and maybe two or three of the magi had died. Jesus' own father has died. It has been a long time yet again. And we are still chomping at the bit to see what is going to be the message of the anointed one. So this week, finally, we come to the message. And I was reading it this week, and I... I have read these passages a billion times. Maybe not a billion, a million at least. I have read them a lot, but I was struck with how I, I was reintroduced to the amazing way that Jesus came on the scene. It was a, Jesus was raised in Nazareth, but it was 30 miles northeast uh, in a town called Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was there that Jesus made his home, and he made his name. And just to give you an idea of how important Capernaum was, Capernaum was to Jesus what uh, Augusta National and the Masters is to Jordan Spieth. Any of you that are golf fans? I mean, it is where he, he got his ministry launched. It was where he did his most miraculous stuff. It was where he made his name. Capernaum was where Jesus flourished. And so we're going to start into this uh, journey through the the ministry of Jesus in the story this week. Uh, I want us to read a section of Mark's gospel. And we're going to read more than one story, actually, because I want us to get a sense of the the rhythm of this. Because Mark is the, the man of action. Remember, no... Christmas stories, no, you know, none of that for him. He wants to jump right in. It might be interesting to you to know that Mark is uh, reputed by tradition to have been writing for Peter, St. Peter. Mark was Peter's gospel. So when you read Mark's gospel, you're reading the memoirs of Peter, which explains everything. If, if this, this action-packed man, because Peter's the guy that, you know, jumps out of the boat, tries to walk on the water for, you know, this is Peter. And so you see Peter lived out in Mark. For instance, one of Mark's favorite words is a Greek word, euthis. Say that. Euthis. Say it again. It means immediately. 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 NIV kind of hides some of the occurrence because it gets a little embarrassed at how often it says it. I'm sorry it does it. ESV does it more often. It's 36 times immediately appears in Mark's gospel. From, it's the connecting word that takes you from one story to another. Some have said that if it was as immediately as Mark said, Jesus' ministry took three weeks and not three years. I mean, it's boom, boom. You feel like you're at the Indy 500. Here comes a leper. Here comes another healing. Here comes an exorcist. And you're dizzy. You, you can hardly breathe. He's moving so fast. So that is what I want us to turn to. I want you to to listen to these stories today. And I want you to do this. I want you to listen to them as if you've never heard them before. I want you to enter into this as if you have never heard this account of this Jesus of Nazareth before. All right? So fire up your imagination. Uh, 
Try to to have a sense of the pace of the stories. Try to listen to the gasps of of the crowds that gather around him and watch him as he does these amazing things. Listen for words in the reading of astonishment and amazement because they're there. Those words are there and it gives you a sense of the flourish with which Jesus came on the scene. He took Capernaum by storm. All right, you willing to do that? New ears, you're going to hear with new ears. We're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. This is the very first account of Jesus, uh, the beginning of his ministry in Mark's gospel. And it takes place in the synagogue in Capernaum. By the way, you can go to the synagogue in Capernaum today. Uh, The one that stands there is 4th century, but it is built, and you can see the foundation upon which... That synagogue was built so we can see the foundation of the synagogue where Jesus did this, taught this. Imagine reading this story in that synagogue. It is something. All right, so here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were, what? Amazed, astonished, whatever. What does it say? That's amazed here. <laughs> I wish I could blame someone else on that, but I gave him those words, so it's, it's my fault. The robe is messed up. The words are wrong. I don't know what you guys are going to do with me. The people were astonished and amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this? What is this? A a new teaching and with authority he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, I ask you to do for my friends today what you did for me this week. Breathe new life into this story so that we see it as we have never seen it before and so that we can be amazed too. We ask that in your name. Amen. So you saw the words, right? Amazement, astonishment. The first amazement came with the teaching of Jesus. It was Sabbath, and Jesus did what every good Jewish boy did. He went to church. And often it was the case when you were a visiting rabbi or a visiting a layperson even, uh, you would be invited to, uh, to teach on the text of the Torah that day. So Jesus would have sat down because that's what you did when you taught. And he began to teach. And those people heard a, a sermon like they had never heard before. And you hear the account. They say uh, they were astonished. They were amazed because Jesus taught what? As one who had authority and not as the scribes. These poor scribes, they really get a bad, you know, a kind of a bad rap uh, in, the, in the Gospels and for some good reasons. But, but you need to know that the scribes were an important part of the texture of spiritual life in Jewish world. They were highly educated, very respected A scribe was kind of a combination between a seminary professor, a preacher, and a a religious judge. They were that important. They were were really, really uh, significant people in their culture. 
But the thing about the scribe was this. They never taught on anything that didn't have precedent. Their teaching basically was like our legal system. You had to have a, a, a religious precedent in order to teach, to, to say something. So, for instance, a rabbi would get up and, and, and he would say, as, uh, as, as Rabbi so-and-so once said, and Rabbi so-and-so would have quoted Rabbi who's it? And Rabbi who's it would have quoted Rabbi what's his name? And so on and on and on and back. And so the point is every word scribes taught was always based on someone else's authority. Does that help you understand then how amazing was Jesus teaching? Because he sits down and he begins to teach. And they, they said, he teaches like he, he has authority. He doesn't need someone else's authority. And we were not really told what he, te- he taught here. We wish we wouldn't have loved to have been a fly on the wall to hear what his first sermon in Capernaum must have been like. But we are told in Matthew how Jesus preached in his Sermon on the Mount, for instance. And there we read that he would say things like this. You have heard that it was said. What's the next line? But I say to you. Do you hear that? That's the language of authority. When Jesus was speaking that way, it was as if he was saying, it was not only going to interpret to them, he was going to give them the law. He was talking as if he had written the book for crying out loud. Thank you very much. And of course he had. The people were amazed at his authority in his teaching, but they hadn't seen anything yet. Because as he's sitting there teaching, as he's giving his sermon, suddenly a demon-possessed man starts to cause a ruckus. And apparently the, the, the spirits that were harassing this poor soul recognized the same authority in Jesus that the people who were gathered in the pews had recognized. And so they cry out at him to him, What would you have us to do, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you here to destroy us, Holy One of God? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus, now listen, there were exorcists at the time. But they always had magical incantations and lots of hoopla. And, and, and it was a big deal. Jesus said, be quiet, come out of him. Be quiet and come out of him. And we are told that the, the man, <laughs> gee, he shrieked, and those spirits had no choice. They just, they, they came out of him, unable to resist the authority of Jesus. And he convulsed on the ground and let out a great shriek. I've had some weird interruptions in my sermons over the years. I remember one time when we were down in the gym. I was preaching in the gymnasium. And right in the middle of my sermon, a man walks up, Without a word, he walks out, reaches into his pocket, which now today would make me nervous. Uh, he reaches into his pocket. He pulls out and hands me something. And I looked at it, took it. It's a, it was an old coin. And then he returns to his seat without a word. So I'm... <laughs> okay, it was weird. It was weird. Listen, there was nothing on the weird-o-meter like what they experienced that day. Preacher's preaching away. A demoniac stands up. He starts to scream at the top of his lungs. The preacher says, be quiet. Come out of him. The man falls to the ground, shrieking. The spirits are gone. Now that would be a captivating children's sermon. I think we're all in agreement. <laughs> Did you see what the demons called Jesus, by the way? Holy one of God. Do you know the only other time that word is used in the Bible to name someone? Samson. 
The only other person in the Bible who's called the Holy One of God is Samson, the strong man. And you begin to wonder if there's something going on here because the spirits recognize Jesus and they name him as the ultimate spiritual strong man who is going to destroy them. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be sitting in the pew watching all this going on back and forth? We read that they were all what? Amazed, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. It commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Amazing. And this is his first sermon. This is Jesus right out of the chute. He keeps on amazing the people. He walks across the street, and you can still see it to this day. He walks across, out of the synagogue, across the street, to Peter's house. And he finds Peter's mother-in-law to be feverish. He touches her. He heals her. And that night when the Sabbath has ended and people can move around legally, we read the following words. They were... The whole city gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Amazing. It's just boom. But wait, there's more. A few verses later, a leper shows up and he runs up towards Jesus, throws himself down at his feet and begs to be healed. This was entirely inappropriate. The leprosy was was terrifying to that culture. Because people, once you caught leprosy, it was a social death sentence. You were separated from your family. You were separated from all of society. When you walked around, if you were a leper, you were supposed to look uh, disheveled and, and, uh, and, and, and really crazy. They wanted you to look that way so they recognized you and saw you coming. Uh, you were supposed to ring a bell as you walked around anywhere near people crying out at the top of your voice, Unclean! Unclean! How's that for uh, uh, building up your self-image? I mean, you were supposed to say 50 paces away from a healthy person. But can you hear the desperation of this poor man? And so we read that he ran up towards Jesus and threw himself. He broke every social custom, every religious custom. He threw himself at, his, at Jesus' feet and said, probably with his face to the ground because he didn't dare even look. He said, if you will, you can heal me. And Jesus said, I am willing. And then he does the most astounding thing. He reaches down and touches that man. And we read, typically Mark fashion, immediately he was made clean. Immediately. You know, he healed not only that man's flesh that day. Can you imagine the soul that he healed that day? This man who had lived in social isolation. Jesus touched him and healed him him. And once again, you are just, you're letting out a great breath. Amazing. There's one more story. One more story. When Jesus comes back to Capernaum after a brief preaching tour, by now the word has gotten out to the whole region. And so now the streets of Capernaum are are like I-5 at rush hour. They are just packed. And there were four guys who wanted to bring a friend to Jesus. He was paralyzed. And so they were carrying him on a pallet. And they wanted to bring their friend to Jesus to heal, to be healed. But it was gridlock. They couldn't make their way through. And so these guys, as you recall, they came up with a very creative solution. They identified the house where Jesus was teaching inside and they climbed up on the roof. Wouldn't have you have loved to have been the owner of that house? Because you suddenly hear this pounding on the roof above your head and you look up 
and dust is falling down, and then a little hole appears, and the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until finally it's big enough to lower a man on a pallet down from the roof in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at the men, he looks at the man, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. That really opened a can of worms because there were religious leaders in the crowd at the time and they were outraged at what Jesus had said. In fact, they considered it blasphemy. And blasphemy deserved the death penalty, being stoned. Now, why were they so upset? Let me, let me explain it to you this way. Let's say that Sam is sitting next to Joe in the third row back. On a Sunday morning, Sam looks over and he noticed that Joe has just taken the last blue card in the pew. And Sam is ticked off that Joe has taken the last blue card because that is the high point of his worship service, is spilling out the blue card. And he tries to get it, and Joe's not going to give it up. Sam's mad. Joe won't give it up. So Sam punches Joe in the nose. And let's say I'm watching all of this transpire right before me. And I turn to Sam, and I say, Sam, I forgive you for that. What is Joe going to say? Joe might want to punch me in the nose. He would say, what right do you have to forgive him? He didn't offend you. He offended me. He didn't punch you in the nose. He punched me in the nose. When we sin, we're punching God in the nose. We sin, we offend God. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, do you know what he was claiming? That he was God that he had the right to forgive the offense that is only against God. That was what he was saying. The religious leaders knew exactly what he was saying. This is an astounding thing for Jesus to claim. I have the right to forgive sin. I want to pick up the rest of the story. It starts in verse 28. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? They don't say a thing, but Jesus can read their thoughts. Probably could read their faces too, because I'm sure they weren't looking very supportive. He goes on to say, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed And go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all, guess what? Amazed. They were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Do you see what I mean? Boom, boom, boom. One miraculous act. One amazing, miraculous act after another. How many of you know the expression, nose blind? Any of you heard? Well, let me teach you. Take a look at this. Matt's gotten used to the funk in his man cave. Yep, he's gone nose blind. He thinks it smells fine, but his wife smells this. Luckily for all your hard-to-wash fabrics, there's Febreze Fabric Refresher. Febreze doesn't just mask, it eliminates odors you've gone nose blind to. Break out the Febreze and... And I know you're saying, where is he going with this? 
Nose blind means that you've lived with aromas so long that you don't even recognize them. You can't smell them anymore. Here's my point. As I was reading these amazing stories this week, I began to wonder this. I began to think, I wonder how many of us have become nose blind to Jesus. We're also from, we hardly notice him anymore. We're also familiar with these stories. We grew up in church. We went to Sunday school. We went to vacation Bible school. Many of you could tell these stories as well as I could. And it reaches a point where it's kind of blah, 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 blah. Jesus is just old hat. But there was a time when that was not so for you. Do you remember that? There was a time when you were fresh to the Lord. When Jesus was amazing to you. When you so felt so alive with his power and his authority. You felt so clean. When you were so in love with Christ. Do you remember that? When he was amazing. I snuck into mops last week. I'm not the profile of a typical mops attender. But there were two women who were doing testimonies I really wanted to hear. And so I went to mops and I heard, their, and I heard two powerful, like tears in your eyes, powerful testimonies from these women. And one of them shared how God pursued her through her running friends and took her from a place of absolute disinterest in the Lord. But they they drew her. They were so winsome and their faith was so winsome that finally she responded and she received Christ. And she said, as she was up there, you saw her face alive. She said, and suddenly that hole that had been in my heart, the hole that I could not fill with anything else, suddenly when I invited Christ into my life, he filled that hole in my heart. And I sat there, I thought, I sat there thinking two things. How, how excited she was, how amazing this was. And then I thought this, when was the last time I felt that amazed about the Lord? I heard this last week about a man who's in our church whose illness has caused him to go numb in, from his waist down in his legs. I thought, how horrible must that be to suddenly... You be, be numb. You can't feel. And yet there are many of us, and I suspect all of us at one time or another in our journey, who go spiritually numb. We just don't notice. We just don't find Christ to be as amazing as we once found him to be. Why is that? This week I was having uh, lunch with Pastor Gino from HCC right up the, the road and a couple of other pastors. And, and our, sir, our sandwiches were served to us and we ate as we, um, as we talked together. And about 10 minutes later, Gino looked over and said, aren't you going to have anything to eat? I said, what are you talking about? I just ate an entire BLT in front of you. You didn't see that? He said, I guess not. I said, you were so busy with your fancy schmancy little bruschetta with your mozzarella and your drizzled balsamic vinegar. You didn't even see me eating a sandwich next to you? And we laughed about it. You can tell him I said so. But I wonder if there's a sense in which that happens to us spiritually. We're so busy with our life, so focused on what we're doing, eating, consuming, dealing with, that we stop noticing the amazing things that Jesus wants to do and is doing in our lives and around us. I want to be re-amazed by Jesus, don't you? I want to live in amazement at the wonder of the Savior and what he continues to do in our lives. 
I wish I had a, a, a quick formula, a one, two, three solution of how to make that happen. I, and I don't. I've, I've mulled this a lot. I've talked with a lot of uh, people, a pastoral team. I don't have an easy answer to this, but I'm sure of this. It starts with us praying to the Holy Spirit, will you give me new eyes to see the beauty of what you're doing in my life? Will you open my eyes to see once again the amazing things that you have done for me? I, uh, I love my wife's eyes. I think they're one of her finest features, and, uh, and I love them. I think they're beautiful. But I've lived with those eyes for a long time. <laughs> and it is easy to not see what once was so precious to you. But I remember, and every once in a while, Cindy will catch me just staring into her beautiful blue eyes, kind of drinking them in, reacquainting myself with, uh, with the window into the soul of this woman that means the world to me. And sometimes she gets flustered when she catches me staring at her, but I think she likes it. You can ask her afterwards. But by looking again and looking more deeply, I, I am re-amazed by her beauty and reminded of my love for her. What would happen is every day this week, when we're reading our story, first of all, we would ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to really see the beauty of what Jesus has done and is doing in our life right now. And how about starting with this? How about... The amazing fact that Jesus has taken away your sin. Everything you've ever done, every wrong thing you've ever done, every good thing you've left undone, every evil thought that you have ever had, Jesus has taken that away. He's washed it away. We heard earlier in the sin, in in one of the hymns, it was like crimson and and it became white as snow. That is an amazing thing. One of the members of my life group, when we were talking about it this week, he said, you know, every time we have the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, when we are done, everyone in the church ought to stand up and cheer because of the astounding good news that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven. That is amazing. And that's only the start of the amazing things. It's just like the story we just read. Jesus has healed us. He has restored us from spiritual, released us from spiritual bondage. He has cast out evil spirits from some of us. He has touched us when we were so loathsome and filthy that no one else would touch us. He has surrounded us with friends who prayed us and carried us into his presence. He has called out to us when we had fallen and said, Stand up, I want you to walk home with your head held high. This is what the amazing Jesus has done for us. And it is beautiful. And we ought to be astonished. We ought to be astonished. So this week, as you read the story, as you pray, would you ask the Holy Spirit to give you the eyes to be re-amazed at our amazing Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, one time it, it, it was more astounding to us 
Because we remember that moment, so many of us, when we, like that leper, we ran towards you. We were in such despair. We were so lonely. We felt so isolated. And we threw ourselves before you and couldn't even look into your eyes. And we said, oh, Jesus, will you heal me? Will you fix me? And we listened. And then we heard those words, I am willing. And we felt your touch. And we were lifted to our feet. And we were restored to hope. And life has never been the same for us. Forgive us when we forget that. Thank you for your amazing grace, your amazing love. Would you revive us? That's what this is. Would you revive, relive in us again that we might live in the astonishment of who you are and what you do for us? For we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.